0: Dear, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, as every week we say, please, Lord, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, fill our hearts. Fill this room. Speak to us through your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to tell us today, what your grace and your truth is to your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What an honor it is to give the final sermon in the summer series on the Psalms today. When Robert asked if I could give the sermon today, I jumped on it by saying yes. And then I immediately went to the lectionary in the Book of Common Prayer to see what the readings were for this week. And for those of y'all that have ever gone to the hard copy book of the Book of Common Prayer to look up a lectionary reading, you know that you need a slide rule, you need to calculate Easter, you need to be able to count from Easter, you need to be able to hop on one leg, figure out what year it is, is A, B, or C. And um, you know what, math is hard. So I went to a website and uh, had it calculated for me. um, And so what it showed me were the readings that we just read. And I was so pleased to see Psalm 105, a Thanksgiving historical psalm, Giving praise for all the Lord has done and highlighting the example of his servant Joseph. I then looked at the Old Testament reading and I had a good hunch it would probably be something in Genesis of the Joseph narrative. And to my delight, it was indeed the Joseph narrative. And at this point, Robert, I'm like, all right, I think I've got this. I, I know Joseph. We all know Joseph. This ought to be a pretty good sermon. <laughs> we'll see. So then I go to the gospel reading, expecting to find a typical gospel reading that goes along with the Joseph narrative of him being a Christ-like figure, and I find Jesus walking on water. I don't know if you know much about the Joseph narrative, but I can't remember the part where Joseph walked on water, so I got a little concerned. So, um, you know, it's not the typical passage that we would see when we're using a teaching on the Joseph narrative. You usually pair it with something like, I don't know, the good shepherd, maybe even Judas, you know, betraying him for some shekels of silver. I mean, there are dozens and dozens of typical relationships and reflections that compare Joseph to Jesus in all the commentaries. But none of them use today's passage of Matthew 14 as a parallel to the Joseph in Genesis and the Matthew, the Jesus in Matthew. So obviously the lectionary online had a typo. And I went to go to another website because I still don't want to go to the book right now. Um, And that website actually confirmed that these passages are the right passages and the lectionary readings today were appropriate and were to be together. So then I considered my options. Option number one, I can call Robert and tell him I'm not going to preach today. That's the one most of y'all are probably going to wish I had done. Option number two, I could have just picked the psalm, it's a series on psalms or any other psalm. And, and prayed on that and preached on that. Or option number three, I could sit on these readings, read them for a while, and pray that God would open up his word for me. I thought, what harm would it do just to sit on it for a couple days before I made my decision? And a couple days later, the Lord placed on my heart, of all things, a piece of classical music. And it was a piece of classical music that the Lord used to open my eyes to what the Spirit was telling me through these passages today. The piece that came to mind was composed by a British composer named Edward Elgar in the 19th century. I am very confident that every single one of y'all know of Edward Elgar because if you've been to a graduation, you have heard Pomp and Circumstance. And that is, he is the composer of that. Now, if you're unfortunate like me to go to a, a, a graduation for my niece at a very large school like Conway High School, you heard it hundreds of times in the same setting. And so I was very familiar with Pomp and Circumstance. I think they had 840 graduates read name by name, and Elgar's tune played through the entire point. The one piece that was brought to my mind, though, was not that one that he had written, but one that he titled Variations on an Original Theme. It's more widely known as the Enigma Variations. In the piece, Elgar writes different movements, all portraying, or as he says, sketches, people that he knew in his life through all 14 of the variations there's a common theme shown in the first movement that runs throughout all of the rest each one approaches it in a different way and it may be a little subtle but it is there and it runs through it if you really listen yet each movement is so unique now this structure added to the fact that it's some of the most beautiful music ever composed makes it one of my favorites I mean, if you can listen to variation number nine and not have a tear come to your eye, there is something wrong with you. However, I'm certain that my love for the piece is largely due to the reason for which it is nicknamed the Enigma. Elgar, on his original score, wrote the word Enigma at the very top above the title. And years later in an interview, he had this to say about the piece. The Enigma I Will Not Explain I warn you that the connection between the variations and the theme is often the slightest texture. Further, through and over the whole set, another and larger theme goes, but is not played. So the principal theme never appears. Even as in some late dramas, the chief character is never seen on stage. He later goes on in another interview to say, The theme is a counterpoint on some well-known melody which is never heard. Scholars for over a century have offered up theories on what this melody might be. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. Pop goes the weasel. Royal Britannia. Luther's a mighty fortress is our God. And even the Westminster chimes. However, Elgar never revealed the mysterious enigma. Whatever the mystery is, this mysterious counterpoint theme, when laid over the top of the piece, would bring it to fullness and completion. To me, this musical concept that Elgar employs opened up connections found in our various readings today and the gospel passage read by Ryland. In each piece of the reading today, we find a variation on the main theme, yet further through and over the whole set, another larger theme goes, but is not played. There is a larger theme which goes over the top that is a mystery. It is an enigma. Yet when played over the other themes, we see that thing, it brings the readings to their fullness, to completion. It is here that I want to take us today and let us dive into God's composition and explore his variations on a theme and his enigma that overlays it all. We begin with the psalm, Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O oh, offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. That's not the first time we hear those words in the Bible. Those are the exact words that King David uses in Chronicles when the Ark of the Covenant is being brought into Jerusalem for the first time. It is here with David we find our first variation on the theme. We find a Christ-like figure who is looking back on the history of God's people and the faithfulness of God. David, like Jesus, born in Bethlehem, a shepherd, king of Israel, is praising Yahweh With the words he uttered when bringing the ark into the house of the Lord, let us not forget what the ark of the covenant meant to God's people. It was not just a cool box handling, you know, the tablets, Aaron's staff, and manna. This was God's mercy seat. When the ark is placed in the tabernacle or the temple, it is placed in the holy of holies, and it was God's throne. God dwelled with them on this throne. When God sat on the mercy seat, we see a moment where heaven and earth intersect in time and place. We see what the garden was. We see God dwelling among his people. And this psalm is hearkening back to the day when this happens in Jerusalem. To the greatness of God dwelling with his people. And he's thanking him for Joseph who went ahead of God's people and preparing things for them. David continues in the psalm. When he summoned the famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. He is praising God's faithfulness. By showing historical moments where God chose to work through humanity to save his people. As we turn to the Genesis account, we find the shepherd boy Joseph going to look for his brothers, the sons of Israel. When Joseph finds his brothers, they conspire to kill him. His brother Reuben steps up, convinces them not to kill him, but instead asks that they throw him into a pit. So they strip him of his robe And throw him into this pit. The readings say the pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. I mean, who isn't hungry when they throw their youngest brother into a pit? (laughs) Then Judah has the idea: let's not kill him. You know, let's make some profit off of him. So, quote, the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit. And sold him to the Israelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Now, just right there, we see so many variations on the theme between Joseph's story and Jesus' story. Sons of Israel are jealous. They conspire to kill him. They strip him of his robe. He sold for pieces of silver. He goes to Egypt. Again, dozens of direct parallels in Scripture that commonly are taught as reflections between Joseph and Jesus. Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, but did not sin. He was jailed, yet innocent. He was 30 years old when he started his position or ministry in Egypt. He was unknown to his brothers, only become known in the end. Joseph is one more movement that we see God's narrative and this variation on a theme. He and David, the archetype of the coming Messiah, are not the only variations found in Scripture. There's a long list of Christ types that we see that are variations on the theme. Adam, Noah, Joseph, Moses, David, many, many more. These men, their lives, their actions, their faith, God's purpose for them are precursors to what we will find in the Messiah. In fact, we can say that they are all variations on an original theme that we call Christ. These are well-known and beautiful. The parallel theme that runs through them leads us to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That being said, we can combine today's psalm reading and Old Testament reading with any gospel passage and draw out this original theme. Why was today's gospel message Jesus walking on water? Other than the fact that it includes Jesus, what was the connection among the passages? Like Elgar reflects on the enigma in his piece being a larger theme but unheard, the Lord used a passage of Scripture that is larger theme but unheard in these readings. When combining this theme as the counterpoint and laying it over the scripture readings, it brings it to completion. It brings out the fullness of what this piece is saying. It is a passage that every one of my students should find highlighted, annotated and starred in their study Bibles. And there's always at least one essay question on the final on this passage. The passage makes up Joseph's concluding words to his brothers. And when he is finally made known, again, another parallel with Jesus, and the passage is Genesis 50, 20. As for you, he's speaking to his brothers, Joseph is speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, some translations be saved, as they are today. Now you cannot sit there and tell me that these words are not a mystery, an enigma, This verse hits to the core of theodicy. Why evil exists. Why bad things happen to good people. How can a good God let evil exist? The passage is indeed an enigma. It is a mystery. But it is true. It is a mystery, but time and again, throughout Scripture and history, God demonstrates his faithfulness to his people, even though there is great evil in the world. We may not like the answer. But it is still true. I tell my students that this is not a verse that you would bring up necessarily when, you know, practicing pastoral care situations. In the midst of a storm, you wouldn't look at your neighbor and go, don't worry. What the enemy means for evil, God will use for good. It usually doesn't work that way because in the moment, they just want to be saved and get out of that moment. However, as we find more and more common each day, truth may be hard to hear in the moment. But just because it is tough to hear does not negate the fact that it is true. When one has time to reflect on Scripture and overlay this passage over the variations of the theme pointed to Christ, it opens up the true composition of what the composer of all composers wants us to hear. The enigma is this. God uses and interacts with humanity in all of its brokenness to still fulfill his ultimate plan for his ultimate glory. Joseph's brothers, the sons of Israel himself, meant evil against Joseph. He came to find them and found them sitting pretty, but jealous. So they threw him in a pit, and it says, with no water. They decided, why not eat, and then sold him for silver. Joseph was in his grave, he was in the ground. The sons of Israel drew Joseph up from the pit, from that dry grave. Not to save him, but to sell him. In our gospel passage today, we see this narrative flipped. We find Jesus coming to the sons of Israel on water, not dry ground. Here the sons of Israel are terrified, believing that they're seeing a ghost and cry out in fear. In this situation, Christ tells them, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come, Peter's not thrown in, but he steps out on his own accord. In fact, he commands the Lord to command him to step out. But when the Lord saw the wind, he was when Peter saw he was the wind, he was afraid and and beginning to sink. He cried out, "Lord, save me!" And what does Jesus do? Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying of him, "Oh, you of little faith! Why did you doubt?" He draws Peter out of this watery pit, out of this watery grave, doesn't sell him, but saves him. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Everyone on the boat realized that they didn't need the Ark of the Covenant in a tabernacle to be in the presence of God. They realized that they are in the presence of God in the flesh. They are in the presence of God dwelling among humanity. O ye of little faith, he tells Peter, every one of them now have faith and realize that truly you are the Son of God. What the sons of Israel meant for evil when they threw Joseph into that pit, God brought him up out of the grave and sent him ahead of them to Egypt so that many would be saved. Jesus Christ brought Peter up out of the watery grave to be the rock upon which he built his church in order to send them ahead so that many shall be saved. And what the first century sons of Israel meant for evil with Christ's death during the Passion, God did, guess what? He let humanity and the enemy do their worst, but he raised Christ from the dead. Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Christ conquers the grave. Christ conquers the enemy. Christ conquers evil and is sent ahead of us so that many shall be saved. This is the enigma, this is the great mystery. This is what overlays every piece of Scripture with all of its variations on the theme. The great enigma, the great mystery of Christ being fully human yet fully divine. Christ fully dying but resurrecting from the dead. That faith alone is all that is necessary for Jesus Christ to shower us with his grace and draw us out of the water. For us to walk on water. O oh, ye little faith, have faith in the glorious fact that Christ has always been faithful, is faithful, And forever be faithful, because God works through humanity, through us. The good, the bad, and the ugly becomes the good, the true, and the beautiful. And Christ died to go ahead of us so that many will be saved. That is what our readings mean today. That is what the enigma shows us about God. In a moment, we're going to come to the table. And as we do, I think back to this past week at school where the faculty have returned And we've been discussing the year ahead, and we have prayed over and focused on our school motto at Little Rock Christian Academy, gratia et veritas. And again, my Latin professor would be very angry at me because it's supposed to be veritas apparently, but he's not here, so we'll just keep going with veritas. It means grace and truth. We live that out by approaching everyone in community, our families and our churches in grace and love, but we're not afraid to walk in the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. When we come to the table, we are experiencing Christ on two levels. We are following his truth found in Scripture by doing what he commanded us to do. We come to the table, we take, we eat, we drink, and we do this in remembrance of him. We also experience his grace. It is a tangible moment where the body of Christ Truly believe when two or more gather together, Christ is present. The Holy Spirit is present in our hearts, and his grace abounds. It is an outward physical sign of God's inward and spiritual grace. And Christ accepts all of us through faith. Communion has reminded us that the greatest evil to ever occur in our time and place happened on that Good Friday. But God used it so that many... Shall be saved. Let us remember that just like the mercy seat in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies was an intersection of heaven and earth at a specific time and place, so too is coming to the table for communion. At the table, you will find the intersection of Christ and his church, heaven and earth, coming together if not for a brief moment. Like Psalm 105, this is truly a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of praise. Like David, we use this moment to look back on what God has done for us and tell of his wondrous works, to acknowledge what Christ is doing for us, and to look forward at what Christ will do for us. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Amen? Amen. He sits on his throne at the right hand of the Father. He lives. He He has inaugurated his kingdom and is reigning right now. He has conquered death. He has conquered evil. He has given each of us, like Peter, new life by reaching down into the water and drawing us up from the water of baptism. Scripture gives us many variations on the same theme, but it is only when you overlay the enigma, the great mystery of the faith, that we see the full and complete picture of God's story for humanity. The grace and truth found in Christ is an enigma, it is a mystery, but it is the ultimate completion the ultimate fullness, and the ultimate truth. And he desires to draw us up from the pit, to lift us up out of the water, and cause us to have faith in him and realize that truly he is the Son of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.